Hi, everyone. You're listening to Superwomen. Today, my guest is Ariel Kay, the founder of Parachute. I had the chance to interview her some time ago, actually, before she had a baby. She's since had a beautiful baby. And uh, we talked about all things launching a D2C brand of an area that was ripe for disruption. So take a listen. I'm with Ariel Kay, the founder and CEO of Parachute. Hi. Hi. (laughs) What is Parachute? I know what it is, but you know. Parachute's a home essentials brand. We make all sorts of cozy, comfortable products uh, from sheets, duvet covers, robes, towels. We also make some baby um, products, but really anything that you can start and end your day with that's going to make you feel more comfortable and more relaxed, um, we'll, we'll make it. So between your first job to Parachute, what was that path like? And then how did you have this moment of, I'm going to start a home essentials brand? That's that's a loaded question. So um, <laughs> I didn't really follow a conventional path. Um, I had a lot of different jobs over that period of time. Um, I started, I was living in New York. I started in PR, doing fashion and beauty PR. I worked for a few different agencies. Um, and then I decided that wasn't for me. There were a lot of things that I liked about PR and a lot of the storytelling and getting to connect with other small brands, but ultimately wanted something different, ended up moving into an advertising type role, which I found to be more creative um, and more interesting, and then decided I like had no idea what I wanted to do, so I went back to grad school. But the thing that was happening on the like behind the scenes was this love for home and interior design. So I started an interior design, home design blog when I was, I guess, wrapping up my first PR job around 2007. So early blog time, they weren't that pretty. And um, but really, it was just a creative outlet for me and a place to kind of log my interests and passions. And I um, was helping some friends in the city decorate their apartments and having them photographed and featuring them. And it was really fun. And so um, that continued as I then continued my professional career, which after grad school ended up um, at a big ad agency where I was for almost five years. And I've just always been a home enthusiast. And so in that process, I became the super consumer, which helped to inspire Parachute. So I guess there's two different things. There was my career in advertising, which I had for five years at at Digitas, a big agency here. And I was on the strategic side of creative. So doing a lot of consumer behavior research, really thinking about how to build brands, how to inspire people. And I loved that. Um, And then I was doing this kind of side gig of pretending to be an interior designer. And um, in 2012, I sort of hit a roadblock and was feeling less inspired at work, wanting to do something more entrepreneurial, wanting to um, have a bigger impact and had this moment of, you know, what if I could merge my interests of home design and brand building and connecting with people. And um, this is around the time that the direct to consumer landscape was really shifting. And I was seeing these brands start and like gain momentum and like Warby Park and Everlane. And I was so inspired. And as a consumer, I was like, this is this makes a lot of sense to me and realized there wasn't anything in the home space. And one thing after another, I decided that parachute was a, a concept that I wanted to follow and really believed in. So when you started Parachute and you saw this void in the marketplace, yep. I try and find voids all the time in my spare time. I'm like, what's, what's next? what am I going to invent <laughs> yeah. that no one has done? How did you sort of 
begin to understand that it was a void in the marketplace? So, I mean, this is a category where people historically have pretty much entirely shopped offline. There 90% of purchases were being made offline. So there wasn't really this digital world for um, home products. And then when I, you know, took a step back and looked at this home category, I realized that your bedroom is such an intimate part of your home and you spend a third of your life in bed um, and sleep impacts everything. And so, you know, as I started kind of running through different scenarios of what to start and how to get into people's lives and how to create a brand and build trust, the bedroom kept coming back to me as a perfect place to begin because I felt like you could create loyalty and there was this ability to mix that, the physical products with this, you know, wellness component and um, a more sleep-centered brand. I realized that there had never been a brand that of sheets that had ever asked me how I slept at night and that felt like such a big missed opportunity to connect deeper with people and create a product that, you know, wasn't just something that you're going to take out of the packaging and then forget what it was and not have any, you know, relationship with. So, I mean, I a lot of research and a lot of, um, I mean, a lot of tireless nights, but, you know, ultimately it seemed like that was a really great place to begin. So clearly because you had PR experience, advertising and branding, and then you found this void, you didn't, ha- you don't have some of the struggles that some women have when they launch companies if they don't have PR or branding background. So I'm curious to know, like, what were your obstacles? Oh, my gosh, so many. So, um, (laughs) yes, I have branding and marketing and, you know, I had this vision, but the, you know, really the nuts and bolts of business were a huge mystery to me. I mean, I had never, I had never worked in an inventory based business. I had never made products before. I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't like. And I had a kind of strong opinion around what aesthetics um, I wanted to kind of capture, but um, the actual making making of a product was new to me, how to buy a product, how to bring a product in from Europe, because I had decided, you know, very early on that I wanted to manufacture in Europe, because that was where this quality and heritage and I felt like I could build trust there. But I also am horrible at Excel and <laughs> and math. And, you know, I mean, there was there were a lot of things that were really in over my head. I mean, I had such a crash course in building a business. And to be honest, I'm still learning all the time. But yeah, I mean, I definitely had a part of the puzzle, you know, where I felt some confidence. But I think, you know, when I think back to those days, my confidence levels were pretty low. And I was also very naive, which I think is, you know, sometimes your greatest gift when you're starting a business is not really knowing and understanding the complexity of what you're getting into. Because if I knew what I... We would run. I would run. I would never, (laughs) you know, there was like no chance that I would have left my job and, you know, a a salary. And, um, you know, I had all sorts of totally, you know, off expectations of what this was going to look like. So I'll never forget when I didn't pay my first electrical bill, I didn't think anything could actually happen to you until these Teamsters showed up, like two huge (laughs) like men that were triple my size. And they're like, we're not leaving them until you give us a check for the electricity. Like, um... And I was like, maybe I should have stayed working (laughs) a little bit longer, just a little. I mean, I thought I was going to be able to leave my job and I had this great idea and I would move to LA and I would raise money and I'd be able to pay myself a salary and, you know, I just continue to build this business and then we would launch and it would be, I mean, it was just so off base. Like (laughs) what a hilarious vision that I had. I mean, it could not have not happened more like that. So, but I mean, thank God for that, you know, naivety because I, it would never have 
I would never have done it. That's right. So did you start fundraising right away? Um, I started meeting with investors pretty early on. I did not, was not able to raise money until after I launched the business. So I took meetings where I could and I had friends introduce me to people. And I, you know, I thought there was a world in which I would get some pre-product capital because I was sort of on the cusp where that was still happening a bit um, and more common. But I, uh, but yeah, no, people were not as excited to give me money as a first-time entrepreneur without having product, um, without having any sort of product market fit. And so, but the the meetings were helpful and they actually helped, you know, me think through, you know, what does progress look like? And, you know, people would say, oh, this is a great idea and you seem really cool, um, but let's see some, let's see you get a little bit further. And so I built relationships with people and some of whom actually did end up investing quite a bit later, but it, it was helpful. Money also would have been helpful, but it was a helpful experience. So how did you launch it with that, like... We launched and, you know, we couldn't get a loan. You know, my brother mortgaged his house. He maxed out his credit cards. Um, So we waited seven years before taking in funding. So how did you bootstrap it in the beginning? Used the small amount of savings that I had. I also um, borrowed some money from my parents um, and had two friends that ended up giving me a small investment. And then I actually, which took me, I mean, it was under $30,000 at this point of what I had, um, which was helpful for building a website, basically, and and not much more. Um, And then I ended up joining an accelerator program. So that was what was able to give me the money to then buy our first batch of product. Um, And accelerators and um, incubators are great for people that are pre-launch, although some now require you to have launched a product. I mean, there's there's a lot of different types of, of these programs that you can join. But for me as a first-time founder and as a sole founder with zero team, um, it was great to have a place to go. And so I joined an accelerator called Launchpad, and they gave us – they gave me a check, um, which – went into my bank account one day and immediately left the next day to buy product. Isn't that the worst feeling? Yeah, it was one day. (laughs) (laughs) But it also like, you know, as these things happen, it happened, like I needed to get that order placed, you know, ASAP. Otherwise, I wasn't going to have it in time. And um, so it all sort of worked out. But yeah, it was very, it was very fluid movement it's of, just in of and capital out. in yes. and out. Um, and so then I launched and, you know, we, because of my background in PR and um, in marketing, I really believed in having press as, you know, I knew that press was going to be really important for that launch moment. And so I invested in having um, some PR assistance. And as a result, we got this huge amount of press and that was really helpful with getting sales. And then I was able to subsequently raise some capital quite fast. And so I'd love to walk, have you walk me through the minute of you launch, you have a website, when when it became live and no longer like private, what was that moment like? Um, totally surreal. I mean, <laughs> one of the most exciting moments. I mean, it had been a lot of work and I couldn't really believe that it was happening. I mean, at this, at this point also, it was still just me. So, you know, the first few weeks we had sort of soft launched and I had, you know, sent it to my friends and asked them to send it to their friends. And um, for the first, I would say the first few weeks uh, pre this press moment, I could kind of connect the dots of who everyone was purchasing. And, you know, it was like six degrees of separation at most. But then, you know, and I was basically packing boxes all night. I was working during the day and then at around midnight I would stop and pack boxes until 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and then get back to working. Um, And then this press moment had, and all of a sudden we went from, you know, two, three orders a day to 30 in our first day and then 
40 and, you know, it kind of tapered off after the initial press buzz, but it was amazing. And so, you know, then all of a sudden UPS was coming and needing, you know, these like bigger carts to take out the boxes. And it was really cool. I'll never forget those moments. I'm still nostalgic about those moments. Yeah. Like when I was shipping uh, my first order to a big department store out of my fifth floor walk up and the UPS guy was like, I'm not bringing those boxes down five stairs. Yeah. I was like, oh, fuck. I mean, we, our first round, the first batch after I launched, the first orders that went out were mostly based in L.A. And I drove them to everyone's houses um, myself because I wanted to save money on shipping costs totally. and spent three days in the car, which was like <laughs> so dumb, but fun. Um, I remember one person who was like who I knew who had been sort of an advisor early on was like, my husband called me and was like, we got this girl showed up wearing heels to drop off this box. Like, <laughs> did you order? Like, what is going on? And she was like, yes, the startup life. That's what you do. <laughs> but yeah, then, you know, it was it was similar. I mean, I had a storage unit um, because I didn't have a place to put them. And I would go there and I like perpetually had these bruises on my arms and legs from lifting heavy boxes. And it was, it was a full, it was a full situation. <laughs> So being that you were one person doing it all, um, I empathize with you because that was my me um, with my brother on like my call a friend for yeah. help every once in a while. What is it like now going from that to now? Obviously, you have a team. How do you sort of make sure that you keep the original values or or not of what you started with now a team? That's been super important to me. The The culture of Parachute is something that I think about every day. It's, you know, probably what keeps me up at night most is making sure that we do have values that are really strong and that we are building an environment that people love to work in and everyone works hard. And But it's really all about the people. And I think customers can see that, too. I mean, I think there's so much about your brand um, that comes through through all the people that are, are creating it. But the it's been an experience. I mean, bringing we're now a team of about 50 people in our wow. HQ. And it's it's been great. I mean, hiring people that are smarter than you and more talented than you and can help with, you know, a lot of the different parts of the business that you're not the best at. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I've learned, I learned something new every day from my team. And um, I think that's what building a business is all about. I mean, when you launch a business, you're in the business of problem solving and, and solving like big challenges. I mean, that that never goes away. I don't imagine ever being the well-oiled machine that doesn't have to solve problems. Like, I mean, that's what you do. And so making sure that you're surrounded by people that also love to solve problems is really important. I think it's a great way to look at it because I feel like some people, including myself, and I had to disabuse myself of this idea that like at some point you get to coast or just mm-hmm. it becomes easy and then you're like, wait, that's that's actually never going to happen. But that's what business is, right? It's like you said it, it's problem solving. There was definitely a moment, probably two years in where I realized that this was only getting harder. Um, It actually wasn't getting easier. And I think I also expected there to be this switch where all of a sudden it felt like we had gained some momentum or all of a sudden it entered this phase where it was just going to get easier. And and that's never happened. Um, It's really only gotten harder, but also more fun. I mean, it's like the problems get bigger to solve. And like, to my point, like we're in the business of of solving problems. and, And that's what's fun um, and rewarding and exciting, but it's not 
easy. <laughs> like it's definitely not no. easy. So one of the things you also decided to do, which probably made it even harder, was you were direct to consumer, online only. Yep. And then you launched two brick and mortar stores. What made you want to go offline? Um, yeah. So now we actually have four. Oh, four. Okay. Well, and we're opening a fifth in a few weeks. Jeez. We're, I'm... No, we're, it's fine. We're all about the retail. Um, you know, for me, I, it's really so much about connecting with people. We view ourselves and have always viewed ourselves as a relationship business, not a transactional business. The transaction is so secondary to the way that we're trying to build, um, which is really thinking about connecting with people and adding value. And, and so there's a part of that that is just so it's so different offline when you're actually face to face with people and people can see our products and then you know it goes back to the way that our products were historically purchased offline and so i think our products are pretty amazing and they're really soft and they feel great and um they're beautiful and we um we've been able to create these environments that are so inspired and really help bring our products to life in this physical environment i think we're not a traditional home store. You know, it's not this big, huge, multi-floor experience that um, where you're asking 25 people where the products are before you find them. You know, we're creating these kind of very intimate places that kind of feel like you're in a home. And then they're a way for us to get our products out there and for people to feel them. But also we host events and do workshops and really kind of make it this living, breathing, cool place to be. So now that this, you know, direct to consumer and home goods has sort of become, you know, there's other players in the space mm -hmm. now. How do you make sure your message still is different and that you offer different value proposition to their customers so they know not to go to others that we will not name? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge part of the business is educating your customers and being really focused. I think one of the things that I learned from my background in, in branding and in marketing is, is how important a clear point of view is um, and having a real message and staying consistent and true to that message even as you grow and expand. And for us, that means entering new categories and launching a lot of new products. But, you know, it's it's all about quality for us and, you know, consistent quality, cohesive storytelling. Now that we're spending money on different marketing channels, we really try to invest in marketing channels where we can tell our story and where we can give people information so that by the time they land on their site, they know what's different about us and they know why they've arrived and what they can expect. Um, but that's a continued, I mean, that's something that we focus on every day is how do we how do we differentiate, you know, how do we maintain this freshness um, while appealing to our, you know, both our returning customers and expanding our customer base so that we're continuing to grow and evolve. And um, I think what's so great about being a digitally native brand is that you really know who your customers are. And we've invested so much in those feedback loops and listening and you know, really growing with our customers, not, you know, we're, we're trying to build a brand that people don't grow out of, um, people really grow with. And I think that sets us apart. I think you said something that most people just assume is normal, but like know who your customer is, mm -hmm. because some people think that their customer can be everybody. And it's really not. No, it's segmented, it's specific. And that can be a lot of segmented specific people, but trying to like cast the wide web and then wonder why you're failing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to to know 
who you're talking to and and how they like to be communicated with. Um, and you know, we joke that everyone sleeps and everyone showers, so like, yeah, everyone could be our customer. But when it when we come down to you know how we're communicating and who the parachute customer is and, and what our voice is, um, it is really important to be specific and and then to be consistent. Um, and so people know what to expect. And I think. You know, because there is a lot of competition and because there's a lot of noise in general in the market, building a brand that people can trust is so important, but you can also lose that trust so quickly. So really, you know, being very careful and, and thoughtful about how, you know, you're evolving, I think is critical. So one of the things I love this uh, womb-like environment to be shared in mm-hmm. is struggles or moments of like, I don't think this is going to happen or moments of not making it. Do you have any stories like that? Yeah, countless <laughs> ones, actually. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's been so many highs and lows throughout this process. Um, you know, there's been moments early on. Inventory was a big str- struggle for us. We just, I just didn't have the experience of how to purchase it accurately. And so we were in and out of stock, sometimes selling through products before they even arrived. Those were some really hard moments early on because I felt like that we had failed our customers and, and we had, you know, if we didn't have inventory for three, four months, you know, would anyone ever come back? And so that was certainly really challenging and just really, I mean, it's frustrating. You know, it's, it's sort of like a good problem to have if you think about the problems you can have. But when you're growing and when you so want to give people a good experience and you can't, it's just it sucks. You know, fundraising has also not always come easy. There's been highs and lows there. And, and that's a process that really takes me away from the business. Um, you know, it's also a process where you learn so much about how to run a business. But, you know, there's certainly been moments where I'm like, are we going to you know, not be able to do this and close around? And is the business going to have to fold? You know, I mean, those, those are real fears that have happened. You know, I've also struggled with, you know, personnel and, you know, team growing and, and growing changes and outgrowing spaces. I mean, there's so many, <laughs> but it really makes you stronger as a leader. And um, I think how you approach those dark moments and how you then move through them um, is really valuable. And I feel like this is becoming a theme, but like problem solving becomes so important. And, you know, being resilient is really important. I think when you when you're doing something that you truly love, there's this silver lining that is kind of present, you know, and at least has been for me, even in those darkest moments. It's like, I do have something to really be grateful for. I get to wake up every day and be surrounded by people that believe in this passion of mine and this idea that started from nothing. And so it's time to just get up and and figure it out, you know, and I think it's okay to have moments where you want to give up and scream and you feel like it's just over. And then, you know, but if you can see through and see through to that, you know, gratitude, it's like you can find your way out of it. And just as a note, you could have those moments every day where you want to give up. And oh, my scream. gosh, literally every day. <laughs> and I do. I think that's like, you know, it doesn't part go away. Right. Totally. And that's the craziest part about being an entrepreneur is that the highs and lows can happen in a moment of five minutes. I mean, you could literally feel like you're on top of the world. And then two seconds later, feel like you're about to lose it, and then somehow manage to feel great again. You know, it's this roller coaster of emotion. And um, I think that's why in some ways, being an entrepreneur is is so exhausting. You know, there's the manual labor, there's the like hustle, there's those tireless nights, but the emotional, you know, up and down is, is a really exhausting part of the business that I don't think a lot of people give credit to or recognize. It's a lot. It's a lot to be always on. It's a lot to be that, you know, backbone and, and to really 
push through and, <laughs> and have a brave face, like also when other people are doubting you. So what do you do to relax after those moments? Um, you know, I, I've definitely, especially in recent times, have, have tried to focus more on self-love and care. Um, you know, it's funny because we're a business that talks a lot about getting a good night's sleep and resting and taking care of yourself. And we really do, as a company, try to practice what we preach in, in that way. I mean, it, to us, it's important that our, our team has a life out of work and that, you know, people are getting inspired by the beach and living outside of our four walls. I think I've never been one of those people who thinks that you need to work at all hours of the night in order to be successful. I think you can be really productive during a normal work day. Um, but for me, it's it's working out. I like to work out as often as I can almost every day. Um, yoga, I work out with a trainer. I mean, I kind of mix it up, but I need to get a good sweat in. Um, it's also like good time to just not be able to pick up your phone, um, which is helpful. And for me, I like need I need forcing functions around that because um, it's hard to put it down. It's hard to stop and turn off. I've started meditating in the past year. I'm sort of late to that game, but it's been helpful. I actually recently just started doing some breathwork classes, which are totally new experience to me, but have been really helpful. So, I mean, taking personal time, um, a walk around the block, fresh air, um, you know, it can come in different forms, but I do think it's important to disconnect and, and to be kind to yourself. Totally. So you have a mantra called you belong here. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this. That is something that I actually, it's been in my life for like 10 years. I um, had, I got a neon sign on my wall in New York when I lived um, in New York that said, you belong here. And for me, it's just about the moment and being present and being grateful and, and recognizing that you're sort of in the right place at the right time. And like, it's very simple, but it's, uh, it's nice. And, and having it on my wall actually at home, I feel like has been such a warm and like comforting thing to see when you walk in the door for friends and family. And we had it recreated at our, my wedding. That's awesome. Yeah. So one thing I like to get out of everyone that I interview is something that we'd be surprised to know about you. Um, it can be personal. It can be work. I've had all sorts of people sharing different things. I, in my past life, I was a classically trained opera singer. <laughs> Whoa. That's crazy. Did you perform at... I performed my entire life. I wanted wow. to be a... I went to school to be a singer. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. Now I just do karaoke. Listen, when I do karaoke, I sound like Yoko Ono, so I appreciate anyone well, that can sound good. <laughs> it's It's fun for me. <laughs> So one of the other reasons why I started this podcast was to give actionable advice to my listeners as they're, as they're listening to this. What is something you would love to share as great advice that someone can take? I, I often say, because I think it's something that I continue to remind myself every day is, is don't sweat the small stuff. I think it's so important to, I think you can be your own biggest, you can be your biggest advocate, but you can also be your a biggest hurdle and roadblock in, in progress. And so for me, learning how to let go of perfection, how to let go of um, this idea that I had to be right all the time. I mean, it's just, it's been so helpful. Um, and so, you know, not letting these ideas of what it should be or what it needs to be get in the way and really focusing on progress and just moving forward is really helpful. Yeah. Getting rid of the ego is a real, oh gosh, yeah. a real good one. It's, and it's one of those things that you always are working on. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Of course. <laughs> 
I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithms. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again and you will hear from me next week.